Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The original printing of the authorized version of the King James Bible was published by Robert Barker, the King's printer, in 1611 as a complete folio Bible. The original printing was made before English spelling was standardized, and there were no illustrations at all in the authorized version. The main form of decoration being the historiated initial letters provided for books and chapters, together with the decorative title pages to the Bible itself and to the New Testament. The authorized version's written style is an important part of its influence on English, and its spread throughout North America. The publication of the King James Version of the Bible, the most widely published book in the English language, James Nocht is in Oxford, where some of the best scholars of the age met to hone the texts which would become part of the national memory. The story of the King James Bible continues now with the translation. One thing, of course, that we do have is the preface. In writing this preface, which I think tells us two things of quite some importance. Number one, what they thought they were doing when they were translating, and also what they thought would be the outcome of this. And certainly it gives us this vision of not trying to create a new translation, but rather taking existing translations and making them better. Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel, that putteth aside the curtain that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the well that we may come by the water, even as Jacob rolled away the stone from the mouth of the well, by which means the flocks of Laban were watered. Indeed. Without translation into the vulgar tongue, the unlearned are but like children at Jacob's well, without a bucket or something to draw with, or as that person mentioned by Isaiah, to whom, when a sealed book was delivered with this motion, Read this, I pray thee, he was fain to make this answer, I cannot, for it is sealed. Before we leave Corpus Christi, there's one more marvellous thing for us to look at. It's a dramatic find that was made just about 50 years ago in the college library here, and it casts great light on the last stages of the translation process, and it's right here in front of us. What have we got here? Well, this is a copy of notes that are now lost by the Cambridge scholar and was part of one of the Cambridge companies of translation. These notes come from the crucial revision stage of the translation. So all these companies have done their work. And then in 1610, the revision committee comes together to go through the whole product in the Stationers' Hall in London. This is the story of how they made their decisions. Indeed. We're getting, as we look at this volume here in front of us, to the heart of what they were doing, the way that they tried to synthesize the different views, uh, to argue about a word. Looking at this, what strikes you about the way that this pen, the handwritten notes in this volume, are formed? Unfortunately, because this is a, a later copy, it wouldn't be quite fair to read very much into the paleography, the actual handwriting. But the layout still reveals a lot in that this person is sitting in Stationer's Hall and making a note every time there's a substantive discussion about a reading. So he breaks it down very carefully into chapter and verse. But once you go any farther than that, you're immediately struck that this note-taker is taking his notes in Latin. He's taking notes in Latin, he's thinking in Latin. The committee might have even been discussing in Latin. But in the process of those discussions, he has to record very quickly and very accurately some very complicated Greek texts with its own script. And what you see on this page is a wonderful manifestation of that kind of Renaissance festival of languages, which is the culture out of which this whole production came. 
In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The opening words of the King James Bible, the start of the book of Genesis, and I'm here on the very spot where perhaps they were read aloud for the first time. This is Stationer's Hall, hard by St. Paul's Cathedral. The hall, like the cathedral, was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666 and rebuilt, but it was in this place that the Revision Committee met in 1610 to finalize the translation of the Bible that had been six years in the writing. There's nowhere in London that's closer to the Bible. This was where the printers came from the 16th century onwards, and it's maybe appropriate that it was here that the most popular, widely read book that there had ever been by a very long way was completed. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity never faileth. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Describe the process for the final revision. Well, it was an oral process. The great instrument, uh, the editing instrument, was the ear. They sat round the committee and somebody read out the suggested version. And if they liked it, they stayed quiet. And if they didn't, they objected. Let's have an example of a word or a phrase that would have caused real anxious debate. One that leaps out from the famous passage we've just heard from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians um, is the great debate, at least in English, about whether to say or to commend love or to commend charity. One of the tiny things, well, not tiny things, actually, that might have been at stake here for contemporaries was the fact that the Roman Catholic translation of the Bible, very much sticking to the Vulgate, went with charity, which is closer to caritas. 
And this is perhaps an example of how this translation on occasion went for Latinisms that might have been more resonant than the native English. But there's also a kind of political dimension to this. If charity is the thing that matters, that you as a great, powerful, rich man handing out stuff to the sad poor at your gate. If love is what matters, that's between you and me. And interestingly, nobody objects at this editorial meeting to charity. And to what extent do you think that those who met here for the final revision saw it or hoped that it would be the last word? No, I would be my short answer. And I, that is based on the understanding of the scholarship of these men who, to take Lancelot Andrews or any of the others who are less famous now, they were keenly aware of how Hebrew scholarship alone was racing ahead of them. And I think they might be appalled at some of the traditionalism that adheres around the King James Bible now, because I think they would have been the first to admit that language lives and translation lives and scholarship advances. So they finished the translation, the revisions were accepted by the committee, do we know anything about how the king reacted to the six, seven years of work that had gone in and what it had produced? Essentially nothing, but you can assume that he didn't mind it because quite soon after it was produced, an ordinance went out to ban the printing in England of the Geneva Bible, the predecessor Bible, in order that the King James Bible could have its way. And although people went on buying uh, Geneva Bibles, the establishment, the Jacobean establishment, at least promoted its printing. There are a lot of signs of other members of the establishment not loving it. Well, the record at the immediately contemporary time of its publication is just as silent from everyone else as it is from the king. There are a few dramatic exceptions. One very shrill one came in the form of a pamphlet addressed to the king from the safe distance of Holland by someone who was incredibly sore about not having been asked to be one of the translators, who took it upon himself to ask to tell his majesty that I had rather be rent in pieces with wild horses than any such translation by my consent should be urged upon poor churches. It captured the fact that scholarly opinion was very guarded when it came to whether or not to accept this, and just about everyone had an opinion. But then the most important index, I think, really, is to look at the vast number of sermons that survive from this period, where we see that preachers, including translators themselves, almost never used it. And to what extent was that tied up with the politics of the time, and how did it work its way through in the succeeding years? I think the political situation really is the, the elephant in the room here. I think a major event we need to talk about here, of course, is the Civil War. The execution of Charles I appeared to the Puritan Commonwealth, which actually for a while seemed to bring about a new dawn, and then everybody began to dislike it intensely. When it came to an end, the Geneva Bible was the authorized Bible of the Puritan Commonwealth. So it was tainted. It fell with them. It fell with them. And in effect, what you could say is that with the restoration of the monarchy, a royal Bible with the kingly imprimatur actually had a new authority. So you have the Book of Common Prayer of 1662 and the new Bible of 1611 suddenly began to fill a very important social role in bringing stability. And just to pick up on that, as Alistair said, the nation has to wait two years after the restoration for a new Book of Common Prayer. But the authorized version of the Bible appears in the very year of the restoration, 1660, with a brand new frontispiece with Charles II enthroned just as his royal forebears James and Elizabeth and Henry had portrayed themselves on their frontispieces as the great patrons of a unifying Bible. We've touched on the intrinsic qualities of the translation. It was a fantastic achievement, wasn't it? 
I think it is a really great achievement, and you can turn to nearly any page of it and find the qualities which the Jacobeans wanted to put into it. You can find majesty, clarity, directness, beauty, a kind of deep musicality in the language. And I think that that is its great gift to us. The words polished and edited here have echoed down the years. Majestic passages from the Old Testament, poetry of the Psalms, all the fire of the New Testament, the music of the words, part of the story they tell. They've become as familiar and as dominant in our culture as the cathedral rising above me, Christopher Wren's genius in stone, and words on the pages and in our ears that have shown the same resilience with the ability to uplift and inspire so many, and to consider the place in our life and culture of the King James Bible whose words are still with us after four centuries. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.